Well, this morning we're going to start a little series called First Century Messages for 21st Century Churches. It's on those short letters in uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And so, in fact, if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, go ahead and do that. Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. But those uh, brief little letters there in Revelation 2 and 3 to seven real churches in Asia Minor in the first century. In fact, it's interesting, they were, they're written in the order of the postal route that they would be delivered in, uh, which is kind of uh, just a little interesting aside there. So those seven churches got those letters in those orders. But they were very real churches with very real people just like us. In fact, each of the letters ends with the phrase, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's just take a little survey this morning. How many of you have ears this morning? Good. So this stuff applies to us too, not just physical ears, but spiritual ears to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to us. So certainly uh, the content, the information in these letters were for the Christians in that particular church. Uh, it was for the Christians in all seven of these churches there in Asia Minor, and for all Christians, all time, all of us with ears to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to us, including us right here at New Life this morning. These churches were a little different maybe than ours. They didn't have a building. You know, we tend in our culture to kind of think church around a building. They didn't have buildings until the third century. So Christians would meet in large places when they could to uh, gather and worship corporately, and then they would meet in their homes, house to house. That was their pattern for the first 300 years of the church. But this was a local body of believers, just like us. It was a time of persecution, and you see that in some of the letters, you know, where there's time periods there where they're under persecution, and that impacted them. That doesn't fit us necessarily, but certainly today, There are Christians in other parts of the world who are facing persecution and who do face persecution, and so that applies too. But these were very real people, just like us, in very real churches, just like ours. And so today we want to deal with two of these letters to two of these churches because of a common connection that uh, you'll be seeing here in just a minute. So, Revelation chapter 2, if you haven't done so already, you may want to pull out Uh, the message notes that's in your celebration folder. It's got the two letters from Revelation 2 that we're going to look at this morning, and then on the back, some of the other uh, passages that we'll look at, as well as um, I didn't, you know, leave you any blanks to fill in, but I did leave a little white space in the off chance I say something insightful. So you can... uh, It could happen. It could happen, and you want to be prepared if that's the case, so you'll want to have that as well. Revelation chapter 2, let's start in verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's referring to Jesus there. These are the words from Jesus. And this is what Jesus has to say to those Christians There in that church in Ephesus, verse 2, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those 
who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. And you have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Jesus starts by praising them for a lot of things. In fact, this was a great church that was doing a lot of things right. But then in verse 4, he says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. There was a problem. And their problem was this, that they had lost their spiritual passion. You see, it's possible to be going through all the right motions spiritually. To even be accomplishing praiseworthy things for God. And yet to have lost our zeal and our passion for Jesus. How many of you know that's true? It's possible to do that. And that's what was going on here. So what do you do? When that happens, what do you do when you've lost your spiritual passion? Well, Jesus tells them, verse 5. He says, consider how far you have fallen and repent and do the things that you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus says to repent and then to redo the things that you used to do back when you had that passion. In fact, here's a spiritual principle for you. This applies to all situations. It's just this. You don't feel your way into right actions. You do the right actions in order to restore your feelings. See, feelings are fine. They're good things, but you don't obey them. You don't let your feelings lead you around. Now, that's a foreign concept in this culture, isn't it? A culture that lives by its feelings, that's led by its feelings all the time. In fact, do you remember that, that game show, Deal or No Deal? Remember that show? They'd always be down there and they'd have about a half dozen cases left and, and the million dollars would still be in play and, and the guy would have his briefcase there and Howie would say, you know, hey, we'll give you $200,000 if you quit now. And they'd say, oh, but I just feel the million dollars is in my case. I used to think, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard anybody say. How can you feel the million dollars in your case? And of course it wasn't, and they'd play too long and leave with $12, you know. And Of course, I, I would have been lousy at that show because I'm, I'm not a gambler, and I would have, you know, they would have offered me $5 right off the bat, and I'd have taken it and thought, hey, I'm richer than I came. And so, um, but that feeling thing, you know, that, that's what our culture does. Our culture lives by our feelings, but, but we're not to be led by our feelings. Well, what do you do when those absent feelings are your feelings of spiritual passion? Well, Jesus says you think back to when you had those feelings and then you do the things that you used to do in order to feel the things that you used to feel. You remember the movie Fireproof? Remember that movie that was out just a few years ago? Really good movie if you haven't seen it. Well, in it, Kirk Cameron's character had lost his feelings of being in love with his wife. So what should he do? I mean, probably divorce her, right? That's what our culture says because that's what your feelings are telling you to do. 
But instead, his dad in the movie challenges him to take a 40-day love dare. And so he remembered during those 40 days how it used to be. And then he methodically did the things that he once did to show love to his wife. And along the way, guess what? He fell back in love with her. So you don't feel your way into right actions. You right action your way into feelings. And so maybe this morning, you realize that you don't love Jesus like you once did. That your spiritual passion maybe has grown a little cold. That you have been just kind of going through the motions spiritually, just like these Christians were there in Ephesus in the first century. Well, if that's you this morning, can I challenge you to take the love dare with Jesus? To repent. That's what Jesus said to do first, to repent, to to come to God and God say, Boy, I, I, I see this. I admit it. I, 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 I confess that to you. I say the same thing that you say about it, that my, my passion has grown cold. And God, I'm sorry for that. And then, and then to take the steps to change, to remember how it used to be, and then to determine to take this next month to diligently do the things that you used to do. To show your love to Jesus. Well, that's his advice for these Christians and I think to us. And then he goes on, verse 6. He says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. And we're going to come back to that emphasis on the Nicolaitans here in just a second down in the next church we want to look at. So drop with me down to verse 12 to the third letter. We'll skip right over that second one. To the third letter, the church at Pergamum. You'll see why. Verse 12. It says this, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. And again, Jesus praises them for a whole lot of things, that they had been faithful and true, that that even in the midst of persecution, in fact, even in in the time when Antipas was martyred, that didn't detract them, that didn't deter them, that didn't cause them to fall away. They stood true in their commitment to Jesus. And... In apparently what was a very evil place 
where the evil one had a very real spiritual stronghold there, a place where Satan had his throne, where Satan lived. It was a very dark, evil place. And yet they had stood true. And and Jesus praises them for that. But in verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and they committed sexual immorality. And likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so repent, therefore, otherwise... I will have to come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. See, they had a problem too, those Christians there in Pergamum. And that is that they had fallen prey to the teachings of this group called the Nicolaitans. And that had led them into spiritual compromise. In particular, they had compromised sexually and in their involvement with pagan idol worship there according to verse 14. And so if we're going to understand what what's going on here and how this applies to them and how it applies to us, maybe we need to spend a little bit of time finding out about this group called the Nicolaitans. Because you'll notice they had led these Christians there in Pergamum into compromise. But remember back in verse 6, the Christians in Ephesus, they hated their practices. They hadn't been led astray by them. They hated what they taught and did. In fact, did you notice back in verse 6 that Jesus hated what they taught and what they did? But they were obviously causing Christians to compromise all over Asia Minor. So who are they? Well, I'm glad you asked. Arrhenius, who was one of the early church writers, identified the Nicolaitans as a Gnostic Gnostic sect. That's hard to say. George Blumenshine, who is a more current writer, says this. He said, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans appears to have been a form of antinomianism. And basically, that's this. That the antinomians, the Gnostics, they, they had this belief based upon the mercy of God as the grounds for salvation. Which is true. But... They took, because of God's mercy, because it was the grounds for our salvation, they concluded that because salvation is based on God's mercy and grace, that it was okay then to just go ahead and freely participate in sin all you want. That because we're saved by grace, it doesn't really matter. Just go ahead and sin like mad. And so they concluded, again, back according to George Blumenshine, that the deeds of the flesh had no effect on the health of the soul and consequently no relation to salvation. 
See, they added things up incorrectly, didn't they? That because we're saved by grace, it didn't really matter all that we wanted to sin. Just go ahead and do it. And so they would go to the pagan temples and they would have sex with the temple prostitutes and figured that that was just okay because we're saved by grace. So what does it matter? And they would eat at the great buffets that they were having there at the pagan temples. The only problem was the food that they were eating right there was the food that was being used in the pagan sacrifices to the false gods. And so while they were in the process of eating this food and enjoying this in this food, that it was right in the middle of sacrificing and serving and worshiping these pagan false gods. They, they were actually entering into pagan worship as they were doing, but they figured, hey, it's no problem. Because I know those aren't real gods and, and it doesn't really matter. And hey, it's all covered by Jesus' blood and I just like the food. Now you remember back in 1 Corinthians. Remember we spent about 25 years in 1 Corinthians. <laughs> remember they had that whole issue about food sacrificed to idols back then. In fact, you know, Paul spends a lot of time talking about how they, they, uh, there was this, you know, some of the Christians had bothered and some didn't. They were buying it in the marketplace and... Paul says, it's no big deal because it's just meat, you know. And, and, but, but it was bothered some of the Christians because it was used in that way and so forth. And so he goes in that whole thing. And what do you do? And if you're at someone's house and they offer you and don't ask, don't tell. And that, you know, remember that whole thing, you know. But, but the point of that is the problem wasn't the food. I mean, he makes that point back in 1 Corinthians. But the problem here was they were in the midst of consuming this food right there in the temples and actually entering into pagan worship and figuring it was okay because they were all covered by grace. And what had happened here is they had come to a wrong understanding of grace. I think it's what Diedrich Bonhoeffer had coined cheap grace. That since I'm saved by grace... It doesn't really matter if I go ahead and intentionally sin all I want. It's all covered under Jesus' blood. See, sometimes you can add 2 plus 2 and get 5. Not really, though, can you? Now, aren't you glad that we would never fall prey to any false teachings like this? I mean, isn't it a good thing that we don't have anything in common with these first century Christians? I mean, Christians today would never disobey God's commands about sexual abstinence and sexual faithfulness and figure it's okay as long as somewhere along the way I prayed a prayer asking Jesus into my heart. I mean, we would never do that, would we? Or... Or that Christians today would assume that it's okay to just go ahead and disobey God repeatedly in some way and figure it was fine as long as later I just asked Jesus to forgive me, even though I'm planning on doing it again tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, we would never do that, would we? Of course we would. And of course we do. We have a lot more in common with these first century Christians than sometimes we want to admit. 2,000 years hasn't taught us a whole lot, has it? And so Paul 
addresses that false thinking, that wrong way of looking at grace, of thinking as grace as cheap. He addresses that in Romans chapter 6. When he confronts that error back in the first century that the Nicolaitans were teaching, and that same error that in the 21st century that many of us fall prey to. Listen to what Paul says if you flip your notes over. Romans chapter 6. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? I mean, do we just sin, 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 sin so that grace is all the more applied? What's he say in verse 2? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? He's not saying we can't sin anymore. He's saying if you know Jesus as your Savior, if you've bowed your knees to Him, how can you just live in it? How can you just wallow in it? He says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ, Jesus, have been baptized into His death. We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Verse 5, 4. If we have been united with Him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. It's not that we can't sin anymore. It's that we don't have to sin anymore. We've been set free from that if Jesus is your Savior. Verse 8, now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And so in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so therefore, here's the point. Here's what all that he has to say. Here's what it's there for. Here's the point. Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't let sin take up residence in you. Don't let sin hang around in your lives. Verse 13, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those of you who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master Because you are not under the law, but under what? Grace. You see, grace is not the reason to go ahead and sin. It's the reason why we say no to sin in our lives. Grace may be free, but it isn't cheap. It cost Jesus his precious shed blood on the cross. And genuinely embracing that and 
And embracing the gospel means that we say no to sin. Not believing that since our sin is paid for by Jesus' blood, we can just sin freely. And certainly don't miss that this teaching by the Nicolaitans in the first century and by some Christians in our lifetime is something that Jesus hates. Remember Revelation 2, 6? But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus hates it when we treat grace cheaply. When we think of grace as something to just take advantage of, to just use irresponsibly. Jesus hates that. But maybe you're thinking, you know, I get that and I'm with you. But what was all that business about Balaam and Balak? You know, what's that got to do with the Nicolaitans? That's you obsessive compulsive people thinking that way. Well, good thing you thought that because I got that in my notes too. That goes back to a story back in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 22 to 24. Write that down. You may want to read it this week. It's a, it's a fascinating story. And again, these aren't fairy tales. This is historical, actual events. But back in Numbers 22 to 24 is this really, I think, kind of comical story. In fact, it even involves a talking donkey. You don't get that every day. But back there, Balaam was a prophet. And Balak was a king who saw how God was blessing Israel, the, the Israelites, God's people, how God was blessing them as they were moving into the land. And he didn't want his kingdom overtaken and so what Balak does is he hires Balaam to curse God's people so that they wouldn't take over his kingdom and Balaam wants the money so he agrees to do it but the problem is every time that Balaam opens his mouth to curse God's people blessings keep coming out and that really cheeses Balak off and so he takes him to another place and says, come on, I'm paying you, do it. And Balaam opens his mouth to curse God's people and blessings come out. And he takes him to another place and he tries again and blessings come out. And finally, Balaam concludes, you know, this isn't going to work. But he really wants the money. And so what he does is he gives Balak a different strategy to help him get what he wants. And this is it, that if he could just get the Israelites to get involved sexually with the Moabite women, with the women of his kingdom, and if he could just get them to compromise and to start worshiping the gods, the false gods of these Moabite gals, just get them to kind of start compromising in that area, then they would stop receiving God's blessing and then he wouldn't have to worry about them anymore. And that is exactly what happened. In fact, Numbers chapter 31 kind of summarizes it for us. Verse 15 and 16 there at the bottom of your notes. He says, have you allowed all the women to live? He asked them. And they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice 
and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that a plague struck the Lord's people. They were led into spiritual compromise. And the main things that the devil used to do it were sex and getting the people to to chase after these false little G gods. Aren't you amazed that in in thousands of years the devil doesn't have any new tricks? And it's because we keep falling for the old ones. You know, nobody sets out to compromise, do they? I mean, nobody gets up in the morning and thinks, you know, I think today's the day I want to start going south spiritually. Nobody does that. We just allow ourselves to get seduced into it. And so let me ask you, have you been seduced into compromise? Well, if that's you this morning, then your response needs to be the same as these Christians in Pergamum. Jesus tells them to repent. Revelation chapter 2, verse 16. He says, repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will come soon to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You need to admit it. You need to confess it to God. God, I call it what you do. I have allowed myself to take little steps away that have led to bigger steps away. I've allowed that to happen in my life. And I have compromised spiritually. And I choose to take the steps to change that. See, repentance isn't just feeling sorry. Repentance is recognizing that and admitting that to God, and then taking the steps to change. And so, Paul can, or, um, Jesus, through John, concludes this letter in verse 17. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so let me just ask you, What is it that the Spirit of God is saying to you this morning? I mean, maybe you have lost your spiritual passion. Is that what's going on for you? Or maybe you have been seduced into spiritual compromise. Or maybe you've fallen prey to the error of cheap grace. Well, if that's so for any of us, Jesus says we need to repent. We need to admit it. We need to do business with him. And we need to take the steps to change that in our lives. So here in these next minutes, as we just continue to worship, 
What I'm going to ask you to do is to just do business with God. As, as we worship, you know, we're going to sing songs. You know, most of the songs that we sing are just prayers. That's, that's why it's worship, because we're expressing this as a prayer back to God. As we sing these songs, then sing them with all your heart. Mean it. But if you, if, if you can't mean it, because this is what's going on in you, then stop singing right where you are and just, just do business with God. Just listen to the Holy Spirit. Take the steps to, to repent, to admit it, to confess it. If there's somebody that you need to, to, to break something off with, then do it now. Don't even wait till you get home to do it. Leave and make a cell phone call right now. Listen to the Holy Spirit in these next few minutes. Let's pray together. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, just as you spoke these words to these Christians, Lord, they're just as applicable to us. We're no different. And I believe that your spirit has something to say to many of us this morning as well. So I would pray that in these next minutes, that we would listen to him and heed him and respond to him so that together we could stand wholeheartedly surrendered, committed to you. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.